This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Hey, hey, RUF fam. It is John Trapp. So I don't have the recording from the scripture reading from last week, so I'm going to go ahead and read it for you, our podcast listeners, so you know what it is I'm preaching on. Um, This is from John chapter 6, and um, as a bit of context, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with fish and bread miraculously using two fish and five loaves of bread. And uh, our sermon today is really on what happens after that. And so I'm going to read... Uh, This is kind of picking up right after that story. Verse 14 of John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, now uh, verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 25. This is the next day. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Guys, welcome to RUF. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here at the University of Texas, and we're really glad to have you joining us. At RUF, we talk about the reality that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. And this passage is actually where we get that saying that you hear a lot at RUF. It's where Jesus talks about the reality that he is the bread of life. And so tonight, what I want us to look at is what is our relationship with food? And as I've studied this passage, as I've thought about it, it's interesting to me that God, when God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden, he could have created them any way he wanted But for some reason, he made them people who needed to eat. He didn't have to create them needing to eat, but he did. 
And I would suggest to you that in creating us as eaters, God is inviting us into a relationship with him. Because as eaters, we are dependent, dependent on our next meal, dependent for nourishment. But what you see early on in the story of Adam and Eve is that eating and control are really closely connected. You see, God puts them in this garden, tells them to take of any tree that they would like and to eat of it, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the serpent who comes alongside Eve and tempts her, he tempts her with this suggestion. God knows that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. The temptation, in other words, being Eve, take control. Take control of your own destiny. Don't trust in God and his word. But trust yourself. Become independent from God. And from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that that eating with Adam and Eve and eating here in this story in John 6 and eating in our own lives is very closely connected with the idea of control. But what I would suggest to you is that whatever you are trying to control in your life, including your appetite and your food, will end up controlling you. If you want proof of this, just look at Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic. You guys remember him back in March? Joe Exotic, the Tiger King, looks like he is in control of everything in his little tiger kingdom, doesn't he? I mean, everything that happens in Joe Exotic's world in the tiger kingdom happens at his whim. He's in control of running the park, of advertising for the park. He's got all his people working for him under his control in like some really crazy ways. I think we can agree if you've watched the show. He's, he's got his Walmart deal for the, all of the like old meat that he gets sent to him under control. He's trying to control all of this stuff, and yet his entire life is controlled by governing and keeping this tiger kingdom that he's built for himself. Making sure he's got the meat that he needs. Making sure he has the staff that he, that he has to have to keep the park running. Making sure that his best friend Carol Baskin doesn't take over his park from him. All of those things end up controlling his life. And whatever it is that you try to control will end up doing this to you. And so I think the question that I would have for you tonight is what appetite is controlling you? So we're going to look at three things, our appetite, our appetite redeemed, and so what? So let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you that you do welcome us into a relationship with you. And I pray for all the people who are watching this right now and who are maybe in different places in their relationship with you. Some who are looking to grow, some who are considering whether or not to even follow you. But I pray that as we consider your word, that you would help us to see the kind of God that you claim to be and uh, what it would look like to be in a relationship with you and to grow in you. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So another thing that happens when Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is shame is introduced. 
It's the first thing that happens right after they eat of the tree. The last thing that's said about them is that they're naked and unashamed before they eat. But then they eat of the tree. They take control. They eat. And then they're ashamed. And I would suggest to you that all of us have very complicated relationships with food, particularly as it pertains to shame. I was a really picky eater when I was a kid. And for my friends and even my family, it was kind of a joke. It was kind of funny because I barely ate anything. And I have a very, I especially used to have a very sensitive gag reflex. And so my friends would like to try to like sneak food into my sandwich or whatever. And like I'd bite into it and there'd be an onion there and I would gag and it was hilarious. And it was this funny thing. But as I've understood and looked back on my childhood, I can see lots of shame that I had with that. As I think about things that were said to me that have stuck with me, like, don't you want to be a big, strong boy? You need to eat this. Now, what boy doesn't want to be a big, strong boy? And so as I struggled to eat the food that I was supposed to eat, a lot of the messages that I began listening and telling myself is that I wasn't a big, strong boy. I was a wuss. I was a wimp. I was weird. What was wrong with me? What are the messages that you have had told to you about food? Because it could be, it could be something that was maybe really simple that somebody said a long time ago. Maybe a grandmother who called you big boned. Maybe a comment your mom made about swimsuit season coming up. You sure you want to eat that? Maybe about being scrawny and you need to, you need to gain some weight. You need to put on some LBs like, so that you can get swelt, right? <laughs> but think about the way that those messages rattle around in our brain. The jokes about trading in your six-pack for a keg in college. These are words that we actually meditate on, and they shape us, and they shape our appetites. So let's think about our appetites. Uh, there's a great TV show on Netflix called Chef's Table. I don't know if you all have seen it. But in the second episode, Dan Barber, who's a very famous chef, uh, his restaurant, Blue Hill in Manhattan, has received tons and tons of awards. But in that documentary, he kind of says this thing off to the side in the middle of an interview. He says this, isn't our life one attempt to fill a void after another? Isn't that what life is? One attempt after another to fill a void. Well, the people in this story with Jesus would certainly relate to that because they're trying to fill a void. They've just received this great meal from Jesus. He's fed 5,000 people fish and bread. There was more food left over at the end of the meal than there was at the beginning. And these people realized, oh, Jesus is powerful. And so they have, the people who have received this meal, they have a power void in their life. And now they have this resource of food, this resource of power, and they want to take control of it. Did you see what they do in verse 15? They, they want to make Jesus their king. And Jesus mysteriously, I think, well, it's not mysterious. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why in just a second. But Jesus 
doesn't let them take him by force and make him king. He withdraws from them. They have this appetite for power over Rome. They've been, they have been the doormat of the Roman Empire for centuries. And here is their chance to take some control over the situation. They see what Jesus can do. But he has a different idea. My question for you would be this. How do you look to food for power? Where do you seek control with your food? For for centuries throughout history, people have fought over resources and land so that we can have food. The power of who controls the food has has been something that's been fought over from for centuries. But today, especially in our context and culture, the food power dynamic can look a bit different. For many of us, it pertains to the way that we binge on food or the way that we purge ourselves from food. And both of these things have to do with our control. First off, the way that we binge on food. When, you know, when life feels totally chaotic, Oh, I don't know, like maybe during a global pandemic. (laughs) And when midterms are kind of just coming down upon you. And the social scene of Texas feels exhausting and and like unknown because you're in your room and what's going on out there? Am I even being included? What's going on? One thing that we can do is we can control the food that we eat. When everything else feels out of control... We can look to food to give us this feeling and this sense that we're in control. I was talking about this with my friend, and he put it this way. I may feel out of control in a lot of things, but I can make a peanut M&M do what I want it to do. I can control that. And there's this fleeting comfort that we get of power and control when we, when we gorge ourselves on food. But this food ends up controlling us. It ends up shaming us. It ends up, it, 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 or even it beckons us to come back for more comfort, to feel like we're in control once more. But the other, the other power dynamic that we see with the way that we relate to food is the ways that we binge from, or the ways that we purge from it. We purge ourselves from it. And I use this term purge really broadly here. I, don't, I, I, I do mean literally purging, but also the ways that we just abstain from food. The ways that we always are maybe counting or measuring or comparing our caloric intake versus the people around us. Or the ways that we over-exercise and exercise way more than our caloric intake would give us the energy to do. And the reason we do this is, again, control. Food is so closely connected to control. If I can control my food intake, then at least I can control something in the midst of this chaos. Right? Or maybe we look to it because, maybe we look to abstaining from food because it makes us just feel right. Have you ever noticed how much we use moral language when it comes to food? I'll give you an example. So when you're sitting down to order Tex-Mex, 
and you decide to get chips and queso, what do we say sometimes? I'm going to be bad and get chips and queso. It's morally bad. It, we, we, we compare it as if it was morally bad. Or I'm going to be good and not order dessert. Or I'm going to cheat. Che- cheating is a morally bad thing. I'm going to cheat on this meal. We attach all kinds of good, bad, moral language to, to make us feel right, to control that. In his book, In Defense of Food, an Eater's Manifesto, Michael Pollan makes this observation. Um, he tells of a word association study that was done between different cultures, different people groups. So, you know, given a word, what do you associate this with? So with the word chocolate cake, French people associate, the the majority of French people associate the word celebration with chocolate cake. The majority of Americans, guilt. Now think about the differences in those two words. Celebration and guilt. And so we tell ourselves if we can eat the right way, then we will be right. We will maybe even be righteous, be lovable, affirmable. So we have that appetite for the wrong thing, and it controls us. The thing that we think we are controlling ends up controlling us. I want to tell you now about my dog, Stretch Trap. Rest in peace. Great dachshund. My dachshund that I got when I was in fifth grade. Now, here's the thing with Stretch. I loved Stretch a lot. Stretch didn't care a rip about me. All Stretch ever thought about was food. He's the fattest dachshund I've ever seen in my life. If you don't believe me, when Stretch was run over by a sweet little old lady in my church with her Lincoln town car, he survived because his entire body and all of his vital organs were encased in fat. And the, like... She ran over him. The vet, like my mom takes him to the vet. The vet looks at him. He's like, I can't believe he survived. But the fat cushioned his blow. But then the problem was Stretch was so fat, they couldn't stretch his skin back together again to sew him together. And so the vet literally performed liposuction on Stretch to make him skinnier so that they could sew him back together. That is Stretch trap, okay? So with him in mind, with that in mind, I'm going to tell you about one time when I was watching SportsCenter, sitting on the couch. I think I was eating a box of Oreos. I set them on the chair next to the couch. I set them on the table next to the couch. And I go to get a glass of milk. While I'm gone, Stretch, the fat dachshund, who actually he kind of walked crooked the rest of his life because of where the car hit him. Anyway, he, he turns into like American Ninja Warrior dachshund and jumps like onto the coffee table, across over to the ottoman, onto the couch, and then gets onto the table, and he's wolfing down this box of Oreos when I walk back in. And then I go to my dog that I love to rescue him from the dog poison that he's eating, which that's what chocolate is, in case you, that's it for dogs. And my dog turns on me and starts snapping at me and biting at me because he only cared about eating but his appetite was all out of whack. And because I loved him, I interceded with him, took him to the vet, and the vet pumped his stomach. That vet loved Stretch, by the way. We, we like really hooked up that vet with a lot of money. Um, 
But what Jesus says to these people when they come to him with these plans for what they want him to do and the ways that they want him, the ways that they want to control Jesus, Jesus looks at them and he says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, you, you're, you're desiring food that's, that's going to lead to your death. It's going to perish. You have an appetite for something that will leave you dead and empty. And we are the same way. We have an appetite for food that perishes. Consider our appetites, our appetites for the food of approval and how that affects what we do with our bodies and what we eat. Consider how long we'll scroll through just the perfect picture before we post it. And then how long we'll spend thinking about those daggum captions, right, that we put underneath. We do this because we are hungry for affirmation. And all the affirmation that we get from those comments that our friends leave us, those comments, they perish like a day later. They don't mean anything. They're empty. We're full for just a little bit, but then they're gone. And because we're so image conscious, think about how this affects the way that we eat, the way that we compare ourselves to others when we're eating, the ways that we maybe count our calories while we're eating. And listen, maybe you're listening to this right now and you're thinking like, oh, I have a friend who totally needs to listen to this RUF talk. I'm going to send it to him. No, no, no. Don't think about your friend. Think about you. Because all of us have some kind of disordered eating. The person who wolfs down a plate of food and doesn't consider where it's come from and the gratitude that we should have as, as it's a gift from God, the person, that's me. That's disordered eating. Or the ways that we, that we stress about how our bodies are going to look, guys. About whether or not we're going to have the kind of physique that we want or that we think girls want or we're going to end up with the dad bod or we need to lose weight. All of us, for all of us, our relationship with food is likely more complicated than we would want to admit, maybe even to ourselves. So what's the solution? Jesus gives it in verse 27. He says, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And the people, this is so us, verse 28, the people say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So, oh, okay, we have to do the works of God? I can take control of that. I can do that. Tell us just what to do, Jesus, and we'll do it. No, nope. no, we won't. But then he looks at them and he says, you know what? It's not, <laughs> not going to be what you do. You see, they're trying to take control. They're trying to be independent. But then he says, here's the work. Verse 29, belief. Believe. And what this means is trust in God's work for you. Trust that your hope isn't in you becoming lovable somehow, but your hope is that while we were unlovable, God set his love on his people. Believe that. And this will begin to redeem our appetites. So the way that my eating changed, um, Shame didn't work. And me shaming myself and talking mad junk to myself about my eating, that never worked. But when Chrissy and I got engaged, my wife Chrissy and I, we got engaged, 
she looked at me and she goes, I love you and I want you to live past the age of 40. So will you try to learn to like vegetables? And she was right. And I loved her and I wanted to be with her for a long time. And I said, yes, for you, I will try because I know you love me. I will try to do that. And what, so what we did is once, once a year, we would have a new vegetable ceremony where she, would, she, puts out, um, she puts out a bag with different vegetables inside of them. And I pick one of the bags and whatever's in that bag, that's the vegetable that I try to learn to like for that year. And she, all the dishes that she makes has carrots in them, or which was a, that was a pretty good year. Broccoli was a tough year. That was, that was a low year for me. But we worked through it, and we did the broccoli year. But I did this because I know she loved me, and she still does. And I love her. And now, like, I'll eat anything. And I do eat anything. <laughs> and I do it because, like, in a lot of ways, my appetite has been really remedied. But it never would have been done, it never would have been remedied had Chrissy not loved me. And so, what this means for us, what will redeem our appetites, isn't you trying harder, harder to be better with food. That's not the first step. What redeems our appetites is how Jesus redirects them here in verse 32. They're like, give us a sign that we should believe in you. Like, give us some more food. Tell us, what, look, tell us what to do. And in verse 32, Jesus redirects them to the reality that the food that they need is from God. And he references Deuteronomy 8.3. And this is what it says, man does not live by bread alone. You know, God's just been feeding Israel with bread from heaven. That's what they're talking about here. Give us more of this bread from heaven so we can believe in you. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The bread that we need is what proceeds from the mouth of the word of the Lord. What proceeds from God's mouth? His words. And John 1 tells us that the word of God is Jesus. The ultimate final word from God about who God is, is Jesus. And so the meal that we need is what proceeds from the mouth of God. The, me, the meal that you and I need is Jesus. What if what comes from the lips of Jesus were the words that shaped you and the way that you thought about food? Look at what Jesus says here, even in this passage. In verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What if that word was true for you? Think about all the ways that our eating is in some way us trying not to be rejected, trying to be acceptable. All the ways that we approach food and control food, Think about all the ways that that behind that is us trying not to be rejected. And what Jesus says here is that anyone who comes to me will never be cast out. You're safe. You won't be rejected. What if that was your food? His words begin to shape you. That's the food that we need. The words we believe about ourselves shape us. Chrissy told me 
um, one of our daughters, she was really young. She was um, brushing. She was brushing her teeth, brushing her hair, looking at herself in the mirror as little girls do. And I want you to think about what you think of when you look in the mirror. And my my little daughter, four years old, finishes brushing teeth, brushing hair, puts down her brushes, and looks in the mirror, and she goes, "Wonderful, simply fantastic." That's what she said when she looked at herself in the mirror. And then she runs along and keeps playing. That's the words she said about herself. Because those were the words that have been spoken over her and to her. The words from her mother that have been said to her. She is wonderful and simply fantastic. And my heart breaks that one day someone will probably tell her something differently. And she'll be really tempted to believe that. What words have you believed about you that have been said to you? What if Jesus' word to you was what was true? How would that change the way that you measure yourself? The fear that you have. How would that change your appetite? in the way that you approach food, in the way that you think about your body? What if this was true about you? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What if that was true for you? How do we get this food that leads to eternal life? By believing in him whom he has sent. That's what Jesus says in verse 29. We get this food by believing in him. So what? Um, One of the fun things about my job is once a semester, my area coordinator, who kind of like oversees all the RUFs in the state of Texas, comes and has has dinner with Chrissy and me. Look a little different this semester probably. But a couple years ago, I decided to take him to this new restaurant called Olame. And at the time, Olame had just been voted best new restaurant in the city of Austin. And I was really excited because my sister is friends with the chef there. And I told her that I was planning on going. She's like, oh, cool. When are you going? I was like, we're going Thursday night. Can't wait. It's going to be so fun. So we go to Olame. We sit down. They bring this menu out. And it's kind of like swanky, upscale, southern cuisine. And I knew like 20% of the words on the menu. I was very intimidated. And I just kind of ordered a couple things that looked familiar to me because I'm not the most adventurous eater, but I'll eat, I'll eat anything. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden these like cocktails and this food that we didn't order starts coming to our table and it's plate after plate after plate. And we're like, what is going on? And they said, well, the chef knows that you're here and he wants you to have this. And so we began biting into these kind of crazy looking dishes And the best things that we ate were the things that we didn't order. Because the chef knows what his specials are. He knows the best thing to eat in the house. And what Jesus knows is that what we ultimately need is him. He's the meal that we need. He's the meal that we need so much so that he goes on later to say that you have to eat my body and drink my blood. If you'll have life. 
that you have to be so dependent upon me that you, you, I will become the meal for you. This is the intimacy and the relationship that Christ welcomes you into. And so my question for you is, what would it look like for you to give control to the chef? What would it look like for you to give the control over your appetite and over food and over your body to Jesus? A couple things. One is it's probably going to look like seeing food more as a celebration and less as guilt. What would it look like for you to celebrate with food, but to do it in a way that doesn't idolize it or make it the thing that you control and look to for comfort, but becomes a thing that is a way that you taste the goodness of God. And you know what? That's a really hard thing to do. It's a hard, it's hard to have the wisdom to know how to, to, to deal with food in a, in a wise way. And you need each other for that. You need to talk to each other about that. And maybe, maybe this is a time in your watch pod discussions where you can talk about the ways that it's hard and it's a struggle. And I'm telling you, if y'all are going to have that discussion, it needs to be safe because this is a place where so much of us have shame, but we need each other in that. And we need Jesus. We need to hear his words shaping us. His word, and this, I'll make this the final word for tonight. This is the will of my father, verse 40, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear that? God cares about your body more than you do. He's going to give you a redeemed, perfect, glorified body. And he cares about it so deeply that he went to the cross. He died so that you might have newness of life in him now and eternal life with him in a new body made right because he loves you and he loves every part of you and he holds out to us an eternity with him which he most interestingly enough describes as a feast god welcomes us to his table because he's good and he loves us amen let's pray Father, help us to understand what it means to join you at the table. Help us um, in all the ways that our eating is disordered, all the appetites that we have that are greater than our appetite for you. And I pray that you would, by your grace, meet us in those struggles and conform us to the likeness of your son. And we pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.